Hello, everyone. Welcome back to season two of the Unlikely Journey. It is me, Stephen Kwong, along with my besties, Jess Furman, Natalie Kalea Robinson, and our wonderful, lovely guest today, a personal friend of mine, Gabriela Villaro. Gabriela, did I pronounce your last name correctly? I'm working on my Spanish. Yes, you did, Steve. Oh, fantastic. So here's the thing. Gabriella makes up that less than 1% of all venture capital investors out there, female, Latina, immigrant, but so much more, so much more color and complexity to her story and her journey. Gabriella, welcome to the show. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for having me here. I'm going to start off by asking the infamous question, Gabriella, what makes you so wonderful? <laughs> um, well, Thank you so much for saying that. Um, I think everyone everyone has, you know, the, what makes them wonderful. Um, and it's a combination of the pros and cons. Um, but actually, I think that, um, you know, what I have... Um, what I have sort of like achieved and what I'm doing right now, it's a function really of hard work. So if I think about all the people who are out there who are wonderful, they're all like really hard workers. Oh, you're, you're too humble. See, I'm trying all of my best ways to get you to speak about yourself. And I think I'm achieving a little bit of that. So um, <laughs> let's be more fair. Gabriela, you have a very fascinating story. Uh, full disclosure, Gabriella is vested in my company, Cure Cubby, and she's been advising me for the past two and a half years now. Just been such a wonderful asset to me and my company in so many ways. And part of what I want to do here today is to show the greater public some of the things that Gabriella has helped us with in regards to growing a startup, but more importantly, learn how Gabriella got here in the first place. So, Gabriella, if I'm not mistaken, you are an immigrant, correct? Yes, correct. I was born in Colombia. I grew up there. How did you get to the U.S.? I got a merit-based full tuition scholarship um, in Georgetown, um, and it was a no-brainer to come to the U.S. at that time. Um, Colombia, uh, this is the early 2000s. At the time, half of the country was um, in, in the hands of um, the guerrilla and so most people were trying to leave. And so my family didn't have the means to leave. It was all based on my education and um, and good grades and working hard again. And that led to these, you know, I started learning about colleges in, in, in the U.S. I learned that there was this concept where colleges accepted you um, in the U.S. irrespective of whether you had the funds or not. And so I applied to a couple of those schools, one of them being Georgetown, to which I'm eternally grateful. And um, I was able, they accepted me and then they gave me the scholarship to go and, and study in the School of Foreign Service. And so that's how I ended up in the U.S. Wow, that's incredible. So what was it like? I mean, because looking at your accomplishments, which I'm sure we can get into in a little bit. So what was that like for you, like coming to another country to study? What, like, what were the thoughts running through your head? Like, you know, did you come empowered with the dream? Did you just want to get educated and figure it out? Like, what, what was that like for you coming, coming to Georgetown? Um, well, I was 17 at the time. So I was definitely very psyched to come to the U.S. and be studying here. Um, I didn't have any specific plans in mind. Um, my goal was really to take advantage of the opportunity that was given to me and be able to, you know, once I graduated, you know, 
contribute back. And that contribution comes in a couple of dimensions. I think like the biggest inspiration I've had have always been my parents. And sort of in the back of my mind, I've always been motivated about how can I say thank you to them, right? Um, and so as I as I, you know, when I when I went to college, a lot of what I did was, you know, enjoying the ride of learning and of spending time with friends and getting to meet people from like very different backgrounds. Um, but then at the same time, make sure that I did not forget that there were, you know, two individuals out there who had put like a, a lot of effort um, in in having me be here in the U.S. and ensure that whichever step I took in the future would be one where I, I could say thank you to them. And so those would be like, I think the two the two factors that have pushed me forward, enjoying the ride, um, but then at the same time, these, this this um, appreciation um, for the family as well. So Gabriella, when you, when you, okay, take us through, you went to Georgetown and what inspired you to take your next steps and what were your next steps after that? Sure. So, um, so first, one thing that I've always um, you know, this conversation is reminding me of is that the concept of untapping potential has always been very, very close to me and very close to my heart. And um, ever since I was growing up, I would think about, I remember there was this, um, this beach near where I grew up, which is gorgeous. And I always said, like, it would be so nice to develop this area, generate win-win for the investors, the company, the locals. So untapping potential. and um, And so when I think about how I made decisions after, after, after Georgetown, even though in those moments I wasn't thinking about it, that concept has actually influenced those steps. And it is, how do I learn what it takes to untap potential? If we think about investing, investing is in essence that is untapping potential and via which um, you can create value to a lot of stakeholders so that one, one equals three. That's really what what investment is. And of course, when you're in Georgetown, you're, I wasn't thinking about it in that way, but I but deep deep inside we're thinking, what are the skills that I need that are close to what untapping potential could be in the future for me? And that actually generated a lot of my of the influence, particularly the last two years of how I started to focus more on the business side. I started political economy, international political economy. And then I, I said the last two years, let me focus on, on the business side and corporations. So I spent more time learning about businesses. And that, you know, when I when I spent time learning about businesses, I also learned what, you know, the, the what the financial system could do for businesses. And that's in essence how I got into investment banking when I was um, when I finished Georgetown. Of course, there's the concept that you know I also wanted to stay in the U.S. Um, and it gave me the I could get I would have the opportunity to you know to get an H-1B um, if I got the job. And so all it all made sense, and at the end things worked out. Gabriella, during your course, your early course of studies. Tell us about the distribution of diversity in your studies, in your business classes. What was that distribution between men and women, people of color versus the status quo? Sure. So um, my experience was very unique because I went to the School of Foreign Service, which had people from many different backgrounds. And um, one of the, and I think it influenced so much my view about 
you know, the concept of how you feel within a community, it's really relative to that community. So like the concept of minority. So I think I shared this story with you, Steve, once when, when I moved to the, to the US, it was new student orientation. Um, a boy asked me, what does it feel to be a minority? And I just had moved from Colombia. So I had no idea about a lot of what happens in the realities in, in the US in the same way that I know now. Um, and and I just responded, I I am not a minority. And and maybe that was naive at that time. Again, it was a, I was thrown into a new country where the dynamics were different. But one thing that that, that moment has reminded me is that when it comes to to diversity, embracing diversity matters, embracing different thought perspectives matter. And and what is a minority or majority also depends on the context in which we are located. And so I tried to remember that a lot as I started, you know, as I stayed in the US and I do see the difficulties that 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 some minorities have in the US. I try to, and you know, as a Latin woman, I say it as well. I try to remind myself: remember that in some part in the world you are not, and 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 that actually gives me strength to be authentic, to feel comfortable in my skin. And so, going back to your question, as I went through those four years, I, you know, in a way, I was practicing that. It was feeling comfortable in my, with my skin, feeling comfortable with my spontaneity. I'm feeling comfortable with my accent because I have an accent, right? And feeling comfortable with the fact that it's going to take me maybe two times more time than, than, than somebody who's a native English speaker to write an email versus, uh, versus somebody who's not. And so from, from that perspective, um, I just started developing more comfort um, by reminding myself that it's okay to be different. And it was interesting to see also my peers in college, like embracing where they were coming from too. And we were actually like, you know, in a way, like joke about it a little bit too. So we made it fun. Well, I'm so glad you took such a positive perspective during the early years. Well, let me ask you this. You have an MBA from Harvard. So was that experience quite different than your experience at Georgetown or was it similar? I think it was it was similar. Um, I would say it was probably a, a more mature professional, um, you know, place. Um, and so, and also like at the, at the, at the stage of, you know, the, the, our peers and myself, we were like, the dynamic is just going to be very different. Um, but yes, it was similar. It was similar in the sense that you had people from different backgrounds. Um, HBS does strive for, uh, for bringing in more women into the class and for facilitating women professional growth. I would probably say, going back to your to your prior question, that um, the first time that I encountered that, <laughs> you guys are going to laugh about it, but that women didn't rule the world, was actually when I started in college, because I went to a school in Colombia that was run by nuns, and they were very hardcore. Um, and so I thought that women somehow like had a bigger influence. And in Colombia, women actually have big influence too because for some I you know I try to understand why but you see a lot of women who work and they have incredible they're strong they're very strong and so um I think the first time that I encountered that that reality was when I was in college and then it definitely I definitely was like okay this is real when I when I um started my first uh, my first job out of college 
But the good thing about HBS, and I think a lot of business schools today are doing the same effort, is, you know, bringing in more women um, into the school and giving them the resources, not only during college, uh, during the school or the program, but later for them to succeed. And I think um, that is an effort that um, that should be recognized as well. Give us the landscape that you were traversing through between Georgetown and Harvard MBA and then thereafter, because I know you personally, you have worked in the investment space, managing some very large funds, but you've also worked in startup capacities and you've also worked at large corporations such as Facebook, now Meta. So these are very, very different ecosystems. Tell us about your experience and how you felt from the perspective of a Latina. Sounds good. So I think um, what those experiences have have in common is um, really thinking about resource allocation strategically. So whether you're an you are an investor and you're thinking about the opportunity cost of deploying capital in com- company A versus company B, or whereas you are you know a startup and you're thinking which product do I really want to back? Is it product A, product B, and how do I know? And how quickly do I move if it, if A does not have product market market fit? To in a larger corporation like like Meta, where you're still thinking through that strategic resource allocation, and so that's the common denominator. It's how do I think. How do I optimize what I have for the biggest impact? And the constraints across these buckets, investments, startups, corporate, and the context, of course, they're different. But in my mind, that's the, that's the commonality and the common, like the common denominator um, across all of them. Um, with respect to being, um, you know, being a, being a woman from, from Colombia, uh, a couple of points. First, I was also... I, I've worked in places where diversity is embraced um, and that actually has been purposeful um, because I don't think it's easy to go in as a woman and try to change the culture of an organization that has existed for 20, 30 years. It's very hard. And so in that, in that respect, I feel lucky. Having said that, it's a sector that it's, it's mostly, it's mostly men. And so um you just have to get comfortable that maybe people are are gonna react in a more I don't know what, what the word is, but I don't think the word is dismissive, but they may not value your opinion um even though you're saying the same thing as your as your as your neighbor, as a person sitting next to you, right? And so once you're okay with that, but you at the same time you still hold your line and you're still strong about it. Um, you're able to communicate and break and break that wall. The other aspect that is important there is some negotiations. So I mean, I've had people like men like shout at me, and I'm just like cold as a cucumber. And I basically, you know, basically say, "Look, this is the reality. This is our things. Take your time. Think about it. Let's chat tomorrow." And I try not to get emotional. Um, in that moment. And I actually don't, I just let it go. And then the next day I resume. And the interesting thing is that by doing that, in those moments of negotiation, I'm building trust with the individual who's going to be my partner once we close the transaction. And so, and that ends up being the case. And having scenarios which afterwards of when we close the transaction, where 
traveling to make sure that we're identifying opportunities for, for roll-ups. And so um, from that perspective, I try to make sure that in those moments where where there could be confrontation, I, I try to calm the situation out and really listen in that moment instead of pushing back, if that makes sense. And in that way, I try to diminish a little bit more that concept like, you know, I'm a woman from Latin America because I'm actually listening to the individual and trying to really address his or her concerns. In this scenario, they have all been his. Um, and make sure that next day when we when we actually we, we connect and we talk about it, we can actually achieve a resolution. Of course, it takes multiple dialogues. It's not just one dialogue. But in essence, that's the, um, the you know, modus operandi that I try to follow. So question for you with your own, now that you have, you know, well, you, you've had your company for five years, but so what was that transition like for you? Like, like if you're, you know, when you're looking at what you've, what you've accomplished from within, you know, these different various companies and institutions, and then moving into your own company, like what were some of the values that you had setting that up and, and how do you run your company now? Sure. So I think um, the philosophy is still the same in the way that I, that I, that I view my own my own investments, which is long-term and fundamentals driven and sustainable. So um, I do not, I do not believe in growth at no cost. At some point it'll, it'll come back and, 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 and bite us back. And so my focus is really on creating sustainable models and then working really closely with the management teams or the founders on, cre- on building that sustainable model. There's an element of partnering that, that matters to me a lot. And that's really the philosophy that I've been following. Um, you know, I try to gravitate towards areas where I feel I can add value where, you know, it's not only about the capital, it's also about the the knowledge, the the, the network, being the sounding board. Um, you know, let me let me listen to what's going on. Let's brainstorm on how we can address it. Let's bring in experts, let's bring other people in. And so that's really what I enjoy and what I've brought into 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 um into Arbor Road. And so I would probably continue doing that. And I think it's the output of my prior experiences and sort of like the DNA that I've created for myself. Gabriella, what you said um, earlier about, um, you know, resource allocation, that that was sort of the, um, the commonality between all of your sort of experiences. And um, that really resonated um, because I think about Sort of resource allocation um, as a like as a challenge daily as an entrepreneur, but then that also unlocked um, for me as I'm as I'm fundraising now, talking to investors, thinking about their resource allocation as well. Um, that um, sort of that not the tension, but where um, the two sort of meet. Um, but I have a question really around you know your investor today, what does being a female and a Latin female, does that change the way you invest at all, if any? Um, and then the second question really is around, what are you excited about um, currently? Um, sure. So, yes, I think it does. Um, you know, I, I, focus, I have a couple of investments in Latin America. And so um, I just feel comfortable in the, in the region 
Um, I also know when not to invest. I also know that Latin America is many countries that are many, very different. It's not just like one, you know, a block. Um, and so I feel I feel very comfortable dedicating time there, which probably I you know I wouldn't be the best investing in Asia as an example. So yes, I think I think at some point there is a level of comfort that is important when you're investing. And I also um, more than a, a woman, I would say it's more the sectors that I know um, better are the ones where I'm dedicating time. And so I try. Um, well, it's good to learn new things. I also try not to um, not to invest in areas where I know that I may not necessarily have the full information and the full understanding and grasp really the risks associated with a particular um, a particular company. So, so yes, it does influence the Latin side. Does influence? Um, I think interestingly, the the experiences that I've had have actually pulled me a lot to Europe. So. I'm also aware that Europe, each area is very different. Each country is very different. And so I have a nuance also to invest out there, um, which I wouldn't probably, again, have, have in Asia. Um, so that's that's one. Um, what I'm excited about, um, well, that would be most on, like, the, the personal side. Um, you know, I have a, a – as <laughs> Steve knows, I have a two-year-old. And so every day is it's really an excitement, um, just seeing her, how she learns. And how she gets amazed by just the smallest things. Um, it reminds me about, um, you know, the essence of philosophers. It's, the, it's never to lose the capacity to be amazed. And um, when I see my daughter learning um, or shouting a new word, it reminds me of the importance of never forgetting to be amazed about what surrounds me um, and the curiosity that that entails. So, um, so that's really, it's really my, my daughter right now, um, and spending time with her as well. Speaking of this capacity to allow yourself to be amazed, you personally have experienced the whole gambit of various startups in various sectors. If you can give some advice to different founders fundraising right now, particularly in this macroeconomic climate, what are three tips that you would advise them on don't lie to yourself would be the first one and when i when i'm going there is build something that is sustainable be like real real um that doesn't mean not being a visionary but real can you dig into that a little bit um what do you mean by that because i know that could potentially come off as offensive to some innovative person that says oh i have the next best disruptive thing? What do you mean this is not real? How do you define real? Talk to us about that a little bit, please. By real, I mean understanding the, you know, what you have, the opportunity, and making sure that it it is compatible, but having the flexibility to change it as things as you get rich, like basically as you get feedback and information from the context. And so that is what I mean about reality. It's like, how is the context shaping? And sometimes going back to your to your point, Steve, some of the best companies that get formed actually didn't start with their first product. They pivoted. And so, and that's what I mean by 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 being real, by really absorbing the reality and being and 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 expressing that. That does not mean, oh, you know, conform 
or do what the market is telling you to do. No, I think one of the things that that I personally love about this 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 country and just in general the entrepreneurial world is the fact that how an individual with a vision can can create enormous value and can really attract incredible talent to help him or her build. And so from that perspective, I'm not I'm not saying I'm not saying scrap the vision, but I'm saying listen to what's around you so that you can pivot accordingly to execute on that vision. I love that. Okay, that's one down. You have two more. Um, I think the second one would be people, the, the people aspect. It's related to the people aspect specifically is um, how, do you, how do you build as you scale? How do you calibrate levers of communication, onboarding, talent development so that you encourage transparency? Um, and, you know, one of the things that I, I have to say that it's mind blowing working at a company like Meta is people are good, are kind and are transparent. Um, and, um, and I know that may sound very different from what, you know, we see in the news, but the reality is that the culture inside is, it's very, very transparent. And so from that perspective, um, one of the thoughts that came up for me was like, how do you, as you scale, recalibrate communications, talent, um, talent development in order to make, you know, performance compensation to make sure that you're fostering an environment of transparency. And um, and then the third one would be um, enabling people to have fun at what they do. And I, you know, we, we work a lot. We spend almost like eight hours or more working um, I think making a joy, creating a joyful ride for um, for all stakeholders um, is 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 a plus. So those would be the the three the three advice. Now I don't think that changes with a macroeconomic environment or not. I think with the macroeconomic environment, probably point number one will be um, matters most, which is really understanding how the you know maybe a short term reality could could have an impact. Um, because again, every microeconomic cycles are cycles. Everything that goes up goes down, and then it'll go up again. So it's more about how to manage um, this moment in time. And so that would probably be the one most related to the macroeconomic um, circumstances today. What are the sectors, industries that intrigue you? And if you had unlimited funds, where would you be deploying that money? One this one space that I that I um that I spend a lot of time is the fintech space, and it has two uh, it has a many many vectors of opportunities, but in my mind, in very simple terms, is that, uh, you know, financial services becoming a is becoming or has become a horizontal that basically sees crosses multiple sectors. I mean, you see it with Karakabi in the ed ed space. It's also a fintech too. Um, and so f- from that perspective, um, I think the opportunities abound um, just when you see how much financial services can be embedded within traditional within traditional sectors. And I think that if I had, you know, infinite amount of money, I would I would probably be even more careful and being judicious on what I underwrite. Um, and I would probably run it the same Maybe maybe not fully the same way because the scale would open up other opportunities. 
Um, but in essence, it would still be very thematic, fundamentals-driven, and with a view that is based on tailwinds that are five-year plus. Because at the end, uh, from my perspective, it's about you know compounding, uh, compounding over over the long run, while at the same time being able to deploy um, on opportunities that are more that are that are more visionary. And to your to your earlier to your earlier point, Steve, um, you know, being able to invest behind great people, great talent with a vision um, that are well grounded it would be also uh, another way that, that I would invest. Gabriela, you have done so much in the last decade. Tell us about your future. What does that look like for the next two years, five years? And if you can look far enough down the path, what is the next 10 year? What might the next 10 years look like for you? Um, well, I don't think it would be that um, that different from what I, I do now, Steve, um, in terms of my how I think about my career in terms of in, like the investment style, that wouldn't change much in how I think about fundamentals. Um, I would probably say, you know, my reality is going to be very different and probably a little bit unknown uh, because, you know, once you have kids, you don't know how things could change in the future. And so from that perspective, from the personal side, um, I want to make sure that, I, that I'm present and I listen and I observe um, what's going on with, with my daughter so that you know, I can react accordingly and make sure that I'm there for her. So I would say that that's the area that, you know, that I see where I know that I need to be even more diligent at, at listening and observing. So, so Gabriella, when, when you look at your daughter and you think about the career that you've had and the business that you run, um, if, if you could snap your fingers and have like, like a career experience for her, like what would be, what would be a, your best advice and B what would you wish for her in terms of the way the world is, is going? Um, first, well, that's a very good question because we were just chatting about that here in our house. Um, so I would say first is um, being authentic to to herself, like making sure that she is not taking steps due to, you know, just comparing or because other people do it, but really like having that solid understanding of what she wants and also when you really want something well you also have to work for it and so knowing that she can like hustle her way to get it um in terms of what she wants to do I mean she's very young I just want her to again to choose something that would fulfill her as an individual um whatever that route is and um and then work for it as well um because sometimes you know we can say we want a but if you if you want it, you have to really mean it. So you have to work for it, and that is something that I I hope I can I can teach her um, as she as she grows. Wow, what a great theme! If you want something, you have to work for it. That is a really nice way to wrap up this show because we have to work on giving you your time back, Gabriella. We are so appreciative of you donating your afternoon to us. On the behalf of Jess Furman, Natalie Scalia Robinson, and myself, Stephen Kwong, this is another episode of The Unlikely Journey. 